This is an ABC podcast. Today's conversation includes content that might be upsetting. Please take care when listening. In 1942, several thousand Australian and British prisoners of war were shipped out of Changi Prison in Singapore and they were sent by the Japanese to Sandakan on the coast of Borneo. The prisoners left Changi with some optimism. Sandakan was known to be a pretty colonial outpost and some of the POWs hoped that life might be better there. But that's not what happened. When the prisoners arrived at Sandakan, they were forced to work at gunpoint to build an airfield for the Japanese military. The guards routinely handed out savage and sometimes lethal beatings, and the POWs lived on dwindling starvation rations. Then when the war began to turn against the Japanese and the airfield was bombed, the camp commandant decided to move the half-dead POWs westward, up into the mountains of Borneo. Of the two and a half thousand remaining prisoners, only six survived the ordeal of the Sandakan death marches. All six of these men were Australians. And afterwards, one of those survivors, Bill Stipowicz, proved invaluable as a witness in the war crimes trials against the Japanese officers and guards at Sandakan. And Stipowicz was awarded an MBE for helping locate the bodies of so many Australian servicemen who had fallen on the jungle track. But Bill Stipowicz was not a popular man. He was disliked, even hated, by the other Sandakan survivors. One of them said he wanted to kill Stipowicz with his bare hands. Tom Gilling is here today. Tom is an author who's followed the winding path of Bill Stipowicz to find out whether the man was a traitor or someone who simply did what was necessary to survive in unimaginable conditions. Tom Gilling's book is called The Witness. Hello, Tom. Hi, Richard. How did Bill Stipowicz catch your eye in the first place? Well, I was originally looking at the trial of the commandant at Sandakan, uh, Hoshijima Susumu, and I found that all the books about the trial, and indeed about Sandakan generally, mentioned this fellow Stipowicz. He was quoted by everyone. He was obviously an authority on what happened there. He featured quite prominently in Athol Moffat's journal. Now, Athol Moffat prosecuted the commandant at Sandakan. He thought that Bill Stipowicz was a great guy. This caught my eye because most of the fellow survivors uh, were very disparaging about him and, and some extremely disparaging. I also found a surprising telegram when I was looking through the archives at uh, the National Australian Archives saying that the defence, so Hoshijima's defence, was interested in calling Stipowicz as a defence witness. Now, there we had or possibly the full range of interpretations of Stipowicz. He was uh, an evil collaborator, according to other survivors. He was a great prosecution witness, according to Moffat. And he was a potential defence witness, it seemed, as according to the Japanese. Was he aware of what his fellow survivors thought of him and were saying about him? I think he was well aware. He, he said after the war, he used to tell his family that he knew that uh, the bastards will never say anything while I'm alive, is what he used to say. The bastards will never say anything while I'm alive. That's right. He died in 1977. And so after his death, 
what did those fellow survivors say about him? Well, it was only in the 1970s that the uh, files for what had happened at Sandakan began to be opened up. And they certainly opened a can of worms with regard to uh, old Stipowicz. So he was he was largely seen as a collaborator, someone who had pandered to the Japanese, who'd cooked for them, who'd uh, run errands for them in order to survive when 2,400 of them died. Obviously, he was reviled for that. And so the question was, what's the truth of what he did and what could explain it? There are all sorts of things said about him, about the kind of man he was supposed to have been. But I think the one thing you can definitely say about Stipper, which without fear of contradiction, was that he was a survivor and a man of unusual resourcefulness and, and intelligence. Tell me about his life before war broke out. What, what was he doing before the war in the Pacific broke out? Well, he worked in an abattoir. Most interestingly, I found he was a speedway rider in the early 1930s. He raced uh, motorbikes and he was obviously damn good at it because he went to Europe to, to race professionally. He was described in one newspaper headline I found as um, the most hectic rider of all time. He, he was the most an, hectic rider of all time. Wow. Uh, obviously, uh, to, to race like that, he, it, it showed something about his, um, his physical bravery, but he was also a, a very resourceful mechanic. So after he got uh, Jack of racing motorbikes, he started racing midget cars, and, uh, he, which he built himself. So all of those things pointed towards the kind of qualities that, that would have been useful when he was a prisoner of war. So, so he'd worked in an avatar, so he had butchering skills, he had mechanical skills and engineering skills, and that's what he brought to the army when he, he joined up at that's the outbreak right. of World War II. He signed up and was promoted to warrant officer, and then he got court-martialed pretty, pretty uh, quickly. What was that about? He was involved in this bizarre incident up in um, Brisbane where some soldiers he was in charge of stole two army beds. And he was, um, according to the um, testimony against him, Stipowicz had said to the fellows who'd stole their beds, you know what to do. And they took this to mean to stash them in the bush and uh, pretended it never happened. But he was in charge of them and he was prosecuted and he was, uh, was court-martialed and, and he was found guilty. But his argument, obviously, was that in saying, you know what to do, he was saying that perhaps they should take them back. So even at this, at this stage, he's got a good ear for the non-incriminating statement then. You know what to do. Well, that can mean anything, can't it? It can mean anything, but it also pointed to something else, I thought, which was that it's quite possible he was set up by the guys who were working with him. And so possibly he was disliked even at that stage that, um, you know, they were pulling maybe a practical joke or maybe something it was a, a bit more malicious. But that also suggested something about maybe how he was viewed by his fellow soldiers. So he got sent to Singapore and like thousands of other Allied servicemen after the fall of Singapore, he was rounded up and sent to a prison camp at Changi, the notorious Changi prison. Now, I mentioned there at the start that several thousand of those prisoners did agree to go to Sandakan. What were they told about Sandakan? What, why did they imagine life was going to be so much better there than it was at Changi, where life, you know, by the standards of that war in the Pacific wasn't too hellish, it must be said. It wasn't, no. We often think of um, Changi as the notorious Changi, but in fact, if you read what some of the POWs said about it, it was it was a relatively benign regime. 
for a Japanese prisoner of war camp. So basically the, the prisoners were looked after by their own officers. They were answerable to their own officers rather than to the Japanese. So it wasn't a paradise by any means, but I think the Japanese held out the possibility of, uh, of there being more food and, and better conditions at Sandakan. And that obviously worked because an awful lot of officers signed up for it. And I think the people like Stiffwich and others thought that as soon as the officers were signing up, they reckoned they were onto a cushy thing. So they boarded a ship and left Singapore for Borneo, for Sandakan. How quickly on that ship were they stripped of this notion that it was going to be a a relatively pleasant existence for them in Sandakan? Well, I think they probably, as soon as they got into the ship, they would have realised that anything they'd been told by the Japanese about better conditions was was not going to be true. It was a it was a tramp steamer. They were they were kept in the hold. Hygiene facilities were appalling. There was very little water. The food was rotten. They would have realised pretty soon that it was not going to be a good trip, and that quite possibly what they found at the end of it was going to be bad as well. So they arrived at the pretty town of Sandakan, which was known to be rather lovely at the time, and were taken several miles inland to build this airfield. And that's where they were instructed to build prison barracks. And the commandant, as we said at the time, was Captain Hoshijima. What do you know about him? What kind of a man was Captain Hoshijima? He was six foot was the main thing that all the accounts of him uh, said. All of the prisoners remembered him as being a a strapping fellow six foot tall. He was a a chemist and an engineer. He'd actually been brought to build the airstrip rather than to be commandant of the prisoner of war camp. So that that was a secondary role. And it proved those two roles in charge of building the airstrip and running the POW camp proved to be really contradictory roles. Yes. If if your primary directive, if Oshijima's primary directive is to build an airstrip in this strategically important place that's close to the Philippines, close to New Guinea, all those sorts of things, then you'd imagine the smart thing would be to actually feed your labourers, the prisoners, quite well so they could get the airstrip done extra quick. And that's not what happened. What was going on there? What was the thinking behind this starvation regime that was being run at Sandakan? I think it was very similar to what happened on the the Thai Burma Railway, that you can actually exploit your workforce and underfeed them and beat them for a short period and probably still get the work done. But over the longer term, you destroy your own workforce. So that's exactly what happened on the Thai Burma Railway, and that's what happened at Sandakan too. They became so sick and debilitated that they couldn't perform the function, which was uh, the reason why they'd been brought to Sandakan in the first place. So despite the starvation, despite the sickness, you extract every last bit of remaining energy out of your, your POWs. How did the starving POWs then try to supplement their diet once they realised they weren't going to be fed enough food? They ate anything they could, anything they could find. For a while, they were allowed to to buy things from the locals, but Hoshijima began to see that as a, a threat. He didn't want them associating with the locals. There was a, a risk of an uprising. There were many more prisoners there than there were Japanese guards, so that was always a risk, but they ate whatever they could find. In fact, for the first year or so, the food was never very good, but it was they got just about enough of it. It was after they'd been there for about 12 months that Hoshijima started cutting back the rice rations. This, of course, was when the war was turning against Japan. Tom, tell me what happened when a group of Australian POWs managed to steal a bag of rice 
from the storehouse and the Japanese put guard dogs in place to protect the rice. Well, this was actually a capital crime in that camp to be stealing rice and um, they'd, they'd found a way to get it out of the, the warehouse where they'd found it. They were drilling holes in the wall and sucking rice out of it with straws and putting it into <laughs> bags. And the Japanese um, one day realised that rice was disappearing from the store and so they put guard dogs around it, but the guard dogs mysteriously started disappearing. One of the guards said to uh, Dick Braithwaite, who was one of the other prisoners, we're, we're losing a lot of dogs here. And Braithwaite said, yeah, the crocodiles around here are terrible. <laughs> and uh, after that, the Japanese guards spent a lot of the time looking over their shoulders. And of course, the, the prisoners were eating the dogs. So what was Stipowicz's job at Sandakan once he got there? He got himself onto a, a bit of a rot early on. He, he formed a technical party. He offered himself to the Japanese as the head of a technical party, which could fix things, which could do odd jobs, which could do little tasks for the, for the guards as well as for the camp. And what that meant was, crucially, that he wasn't forced to go to the aerodrome and do manual labour, hacking a, an airstrip out of the jungle. So he wasn't alone. He had a, a, a party of about 20 or so, I think, in his technical party. They were very well fed. The work they got was light. They avoided beatings because the, the guards valued what they did. And they avoided that back-breaking physical labour at the aerodrome. Was he able to establish friendly relations with some of the guards and officers? He was unusual in many ways, Stipowicz, and one way was that he, he made an effort to learn the language. So he did start to, he did speak a bit of Japanese and friendly. I don't know whether he was friendly. He was friendly enough to be, to make himself trusted. Now, at the same time as the Japanese guards were trusting him because he was fixing their watches and repairing buckets for the latrines, he was actually also a pretty important part of a smuggling ring that was bringing in food and medicines into the camp. He was a party to a, a secret prisoners' committee that was also had a clandestine radio. So he was actually working both sides pretty early on. But there's no doubt that he was um, he was seen by other prisoners as sucking up to the Japanese guards. How did the smuggling ring work? There were civilians outside the camp who were, especially Jim Taylor, who was the doctor at the Sandakan Hospital, who was helping locals smuggle food and medicines, bandages, other useful equipment, and also chemicals needed for the battery into the camp. Sometimes they could even bribe the Japanese guards to bring things back from the Sandakan township itself. How about the local Malay people? How sympathetic were they to the Japanese or to the Allies? Where did their sympathies lay, by and large? Look, by and large, I think even though Britain had been the, the colonial power and not always benign, the Malays were largely sympathetic towards the British. They were, however, bullied and bribed by the Japanese, who were very keen to get the local population on side. So there, there, were, there was a mixture. There, was, there were some that were instinctively loyal to the British and therefore to the Australian prisoners, um, but there were others that were quite easily forced to kowtow by the Japanese. The beatings were quite regular and brutal. Were they all about infractions of the rules or were some or many of the beatings of the prisoners done just out of sheer sadism? Sadism, I think, is, is probably true in some cases and also just to um, assert who was in charge. 
There were a lot of prisoners there. They had to be kept under the, the Japanese thumb and they wanted to humiliate the prisoners and especially the officers in front of the local people to show the local Malays that Japan was in charge now. So, yes, there was undoubtedly some... Um, there were sadists there, but I think uh, a lot of it was simply... It was a power play that they wanted to make it clear to the prisoners where they were in the pecking order and that they had no hope of, of rising up against Japanese authority. Tell me about one of the prisoners there. There was a, an Aboriginal prisoner by the name of Jimmy Darlington who had been a champion boxer. How did he fare under he, this brutal regime? Yeah, he, he'd been a champion boxer. He'd, won a, he'd, he'd been the champion boxer on the, um, on the ship out. He was very popular with his fellow prisoners he was working at the aerodrome one day when, according to most accounts, one of the Japanese guards tried to um, wash his dacks in a cooking pot. And Darlington was uh, annoyed about that. And he got into a fight with one of the Japanese guards. He was a boxer, so he knocked him down pretty easily. Oh, he clocked him, did he? Right. He, he clocked yeah, him yeah. big time. And all the rest of the Japanese guards flew at him. And they beat him to a pulp and then he was tortured in various ways and then he was put in a bamboo cage overnight. But fortunately, as it turned out really for him, he was he was sent off to be tried for fighting the Japanese guards and he was sent to a, a, another very notorious prison, Outram Road Jail in, in Singapore and he served a time there, but it meant that he was not at Sendakan when the death marches happened. So ironically... By being beaten half to death, he uh, it saved his life. He saved. He survived the war. After he did survive the war. Yeah. I wonder what state he was in after all those beatings. If he fully recovered, or if he was never quite the same man after that. Hard to believe he was mm. the same man. I mean, there, every every account of what happened at Sandakan mentions Jimmy Darlington and how he was asking to be killed. He was in in such agony from the beatings, but he did survive. You mentioned bamboo cages there. What were these cages like? How many prisoners could they hold at a time? They could hold up to a dozen or so prisoners. They had to crawl in through a small hole in the in the bamboo sides and, and there was no shelter there from the elements. There was no protection against mosquitoes. They were fed very poorly. They were given nothing at all for the first day or so and then they were given just starvation rations and they were often taken out at five o'clock every evening for supposedly for PT instruction, which was meant a bashing by the guards. Then the new group of guards arrived from Formosa, which we now call Taiwan, the island of Taiwan. So these were ethnically Chinese, but had been living under Japanese rule for quite some time. How were they when they arrived? Were they more compassionate towards the prisoners than the Japanese guards had been? No, I think the opposite. They were they were they were known as Kichi guards because they were quite small. Kichi meant small. The Formosans were very poorly treated in the Japanese army by the Japanese. They were always being pushed around by the Japanese and they took it out on anyone who was weaker than they were, more helpless than they were. So yeah, they, they were said act- the same thing happened on the Thai Burma Railway where the Korean guards who had been brutalised by their Japanese officers in turn really took it out on the the Australian and British prisoners on the Thai Burma Railway. That's right, yeah. And 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 several of the prisoners said that the, the guards early on at Sandakan were often frontline soldiers, um, frontline Japanese soldiers. And so you won't find many prisoner accounts saying they were well treated by the guards, but at least early on, I think they thought they were by and large more fairly treated by 
the Japanese who had been frontline soldiers themselves. But when these Kitschi guards came along, who who had not necessarily been frontline soldiers themselves, and and who in it, who as you say had already been brutalised by their own superiors, um, life got a lot tougher for the prisoners. At some point, the Japanese commandant decided to remove just about every last one of the Allied officers from Sandakan camp. What effect did the removal of the officers have on the prisoners? Things got worse because the prisoners had at least afforded their their men a, a degree of protection. They could function to some extent as intermediaries between the, the Japanese guards and, and their own men. The Japanese Hoshijima was was keen to get rid of the officers because he saw them as the most likely to instigate an, an uprising. And he thought that by sending the officers away from Sandakan, he'd be taking the brains out of the camp, that the men would be too, uh, too stupid to be able to organise anything themselves. Yeah, well, one of the last officers that was left standing, who was put in charge, was a man named Captain George Cook. Captain Cook, as it turns out, Captain George Cook. What kind of an officer was he? The officers who who remained were carefully picked by the Japanese because um, they were they were not likely to be militant. They were obedient. They themselves kowtowed to the to the Japanese. I mean, in many ways, I, I think it's very difficult to make judgments about people who are kept under those conditions, but a lot of them were pretty ordinary characters and, and Cook was one of those. He was seen as a collaborator himself who was more interested in um, uh, sucking up to Hoshijima for, for his own interests, out of his own interests, than he was for protecting his men. At this point, a very interesting group comes into this story, a group called the SRD that was known as the Services Reconnaissance Department. This is part of the Australian Armed Forces. Tell me a bit about the SRD and their role in World War II. Well, they they were running special operations behind the behind the Japanese lines, so they sent several parties into Borneo, largely there... Uh, purpose was to to try and ferment local opposition to the Japanese. So they're a bit like what Churchill's Special Operations Executive, they the were. Australian equivalent of that, were they? Yeah, yeah. They were they were commandos sent in to to gain intelligence, but also to organise the locals to to uh, resist the Japanese. And so they landed in Borneo under an operation called Operation Python. What were they planning to do once they landed secretly on the coast of Borneo? Their first job was to to organise resistance among the locals, but they were also there to to scope out possible landing sites for the Allies as as the war developed because the tide of the war was turning against Japan. The Allies were now looking at reconquering the various territories that the Japanese had taken, the Philippines, Borneo, etc. And um, so the um, SRD agents were sent in partly to, to look at where could be good landing sites um, in preparation for Allied landings. And then did they become aware at this point, having landed not too far from Sandakan, that there were thousands of Allied prisoners in Sandakan living under these unspeakable conditions? They were. There, there were several SRD operations. And um, yes, they did become aware that Australians were being held there because 
Very few Australians escaped, but a, a handful did, and some of those got back to Australia and were able to report what was going on. They gave very detailed accounts of the terrible conditions they were being held under, and so that that became part of uh, the reason why the SRD was going into Borneo to to see what the truth was behind um, these stories of what was going on in Sandakan. So as the tide of the war was turning and these stories emerged of Australians suffering under, thousands of Australians suffering under extraordinary conditions in Sandakan, was there ever a concerted attempt to rescue these men? There was. There was certainly, uh, there was a, a a, a group went in specifically with instructions to find out what the condition of the prisoners at Sandakan was and um, what the possibilities might be for rescuing them, either with paratroopers or with um, with boats coming in. But it, it was one of the many disastrous special ops um, missions in Borneo that they heard that... Um, there were many prisoners being held under appalling conditions, but they heard also that uh, they had been marched to Ranau. Now, they were told that a group of prisoners had been marched up to Ranau in the interior, but um, what they didn't realise was that it was only a small group that had been sent up there. Well, it was not a small group. There were several hundred that had been sent, but they believed that all of the prisoners had been sent away from Sandakan. So by the time a mission could have been organised to possibly rescue them, news was getting back to Australia that there were no prisoners left at Sandakan. So they were left there to meet their fate? They were left there to meet their fate, yeah. You're listening to Conversations with Richard Feidler. Hear more conversations anytime on the ABC Listen app. Or go to abc.net.au slash conversations. So by 1943, the airfield that had been completed at Sandakan by the POWs was within range of Allied bombers. And bombing attacks were commenced against Sandakan. How did the POWs at Sandakan react to the bombing attacks on Sandakan? At first, they rather um, idealistically thought that this was heralding their rescue. The war was soon going to be over. The Allies were bombing the airstrip. They hated having to build it. They were more than happy to see it wrecked they didn't realise that, that that airstrip was the key to why they were being kept alive at all. So on Christmas Day 1944, the um, Allies, rather than sending over fighter bombers to be a nuisance, sent over some heavy American bombers to um, destroy the airfield completely. And really at a stroke on that Christmas Day 1944, the lives of the prisoners became very perilous because... They were being kept there to to build and to maintain an airfield that was no longer usable and never would be used again. So what were they then in the eyes of the Japanese at that point, given that they were no longer of use to the Japanese? They were they were mouths to feed and they'd also been brutalised. They were potentially a, a serious embarrassment when the war ended if the, if the result was, was the wrong one. So the Japanese cut off their rice altogether. How was Bill Stipowicz able to stay comparatively healthy at this time? Well, Stipowicz, by his own account in some of the statements he made after the war, said that he was never really hungry. 
the technical party indeed was was not just better fed, but at, at one point he describes that they really were given more food than they could eat by the Japanese. So he found it possible to survive an awful lot better than anyone else because largely of uh, of being better fed. Was he able to use this privileged position to help some of these poor men who were starving and sick? He did. Look, he he was um, he was so useful in in helping smuggle food into the camp, but he also made sure that supplies got to the patients in in the prison hospital. So I think even though we have largely his own word for for what he did for for prisoners, I think he certainly played a role in um, in it where he could. He wasn't just out for himself. To understand what's going on here, you sort of have to enter into the kind of heartless and terrible calculus that's in the mind of the Japanese officers at the time. The airfield's been destroyed. The Japanese might have simply left the prisoners at Sandakan just to starve to death. Why did they then make the decision to embark on these death marches up to Ranau in the mountains of Borneo? Well, that is a a question that it's difficult to answer, even looking at the Japanese accounts of why they were sent. But I think there are some clues that we can find there. One is that the Japanese knew that they'd been mistreating Allied prisoners. They'd been forcing sick prisoners to work. There was ample evidence of them dragging prisoners out of hospital beds to work on the aerodrome. They'd been treating them cruelly. They'd been denying the medicines. They'd been denying them food. There was a lot of ammunition there if the Allies won, and it was looking increasingly likely that they would, that many Japanese officers would be in big trouble when uh, when a reckoning was uh, was made at the end of the war. And I so think so that, you're saying, like, to conceal one war crime, they committed an even worse one? Then. I think that's, uh, that's one reason why they did it, yeah. So there were three sets of marches. The first march was with the 500 healthy prisoners, I think the Japanese call them. How healthy were this, this first group? Well, even Hoshijima initially said that he couldn't find more than 200 who were, who were fit to go. And he was told by army headquarters that he had to find 500. He eventually settled on finding 450, but it, it was pretty clear that very few of those, not many more than the overfed officers and the few members of the technical party who went were actually in any kind of state to march, certainly not to march 260 kilometres through the jungle up to Ranau. 260 kilometres. And what was this jungle track like? What do we know of that? It was a very difficult jungle track. It was, there, had, there were other jungle tracks, but this one had actually been hacked out relatively recently by some locals who had thought that it was going to be used by the Japanese themselves. So it was made especially arduous, taking the worst possible routes oh. over mountains. But this turned out to be the one that the Japanese would use to drive the prisoners over. So the locals built it as a trap for the retreating Japanese, and this was the track that the POWs were forced to travel on. That's right. What happened to those men as they went along the track and those who found that due to suffering dysentery and beriberi and scabies and ulcers and whatever else that they couldn't go on? Well, they were in appalling physical state, most of them, when they left. Um, they were certainly in no state to be marching through the jungle without, without boots. They were forced to carry their food and they were also forced to carry equipment and ammunition for the Japanese guards themselves. So they were carrying a vast amount of, uh, of stuff through a track which many Japanese soldiers had died on during the war. There was no way that, that many were going to survive. So by the time they got to Ranau, hundreds had already died. And what happened when they got to Ranau up in the mountains after this 
kilometre forced march. Well, conditions were even worse at Renau than they had been at um, Sandakan. It was it was more remote. Um, the only way of um, uh, of getting rice was marching back and forth to a place that they'd passed en route while they were on the march and the guards needed rice to be picked up for them. The prisoners were forced to go and fetch it. That was a, a long three-day hike itself and many more died there. They were poorly fed. Disease was rampant in Renau, but they were also given back-breaking work to do. Hundreds more died while they were at Renau. Then in May 1945, a second group of prisoners were marched out of Sandakan, another more than 500 prisoners this time. And this included Bill Stipowicz, this second group? It did. Prisoners who had been deemed unfit to leave at the end of January were considered fit to march up to Renau. Now, to be clear, you show that there were moments on the second death march that Stipowicz was on where he showed great courage on behalf of the other prisoners. He did. He, he showed courage and, and resourcefulness. There was a, an incident which several people describe where they had to cross a ravine on a log and uh, Stipowicz had got across and another prisoner froze halfway across and Stipowicz went back and picked up this soldier and carried him across the log at great risk to himself since he was being teed up by a Japanese with a rifle. So, yes, he showed physical courage, but he also showed a, an enterprise and a resourcefulness that, that obviously benefited him, but also benefited the men in his group. So he was one of the 183 who survived the second death march to Renau. How many were still alive of that first group that had gone? Well, out of that first 456 were alive when, when Stipowicz arrived with the second death march group. So you're right that he and another PRW, Herman Reithert, planned to escape and they got away. How did they make their escape from Ranau? So this was July 1945. There were 32 prisoners left by the end of July. Stipowicz could see that they were all going to die. Many of them were already unconscious and he'd been tipped off by one of the guards that the Japanese were going to shoot the rest. And so that was when he decided that it was now or never. He asked many people to go with him, but none of them were in any state to go except Herman Reither. Herman Reither and he left on the night of the 28th of July, 1945. Stipowicz was smart enough to know that they'd be sending search parties out for him as soon as he left the camp or as soon as he was found to be missing. So he stayed inside the camp with Reither. They lay low for 24 hours while the Japanese rushed around looking for him. Sending, beyond the camp, right. Beyond the camp, right. sending search parties out with orders to shoot Stipowicz on site because he knew so much. And then after those search parties came back, they were knocked around by their officers for having failed to find Stipowicz. And Stipowicz and Ryther then, when darkness fell, they um, slipped out of the camp. Did Stipowicz and Ryther witness these guards being knocked around by their superiors from their hiding place? Were they able to see this taking place? Stipowicz saw them being king hit by their sergeants, yes, for, for failing to find them. And then there was the final third march of prisoners out of Sandakan to Ranau. 250 of the last sickest prisoners. None of them got further than 50 kilometres. All of them died. To read about this, Tom, it feels like there's this strange dynamic in place, a kind of an evil dynamic that people are participants in, but they also seem to be helpless to do anything about stopping it or something. I don't know. It seems like it's a kind of a madness but it also seems like the logical end point 
of what happens at the end of military fascism. What do you, what do you think about all that? Well, I think I think they are in the grip of of this kind of evil, as you say. It is a kind of madness. They were the the Japanese could see which way the war was going. Those prisoners who who didn't leave on the third and final death march were left at Sandakan. They were basically left out in the open and the camp was burnt down around them. There's an apocalyptic scenario there which sort of plays into what you're saying there about this this evil madness. In the end, those prisoners who were left at Sandakan who who didn't actually die of starvation were, that were shot by the Japanese. It's It's a horrifying scene. I think there was... Yeah, there's a sense in in which the the Japanese were in the grip of something which was um, which was which was beyond their control. They they'd um, they'd succumb to this craziness. Three of the survivors were escapees: Keith Bottrell, Bill Moxham, and Nelson Short. They escaped and survived with help from the Malay locals. There, they got to an Australian camp, and that's when they discovered that Stipplewich had also escaped and survived. And that's when Mox Bill Moxham said that he would kill. Stipowicz, with his bare hands, having discovered that he'd survived as well. What was going on there, do you think? Well, the other survivors, Moxham was was one. Moxham had certainly got reasons for thinking that Stipowicz was was a collaborator. And by definition, anyone who collaborated and got better treatment and ate more food was, was getting those things at the expense of other prisoners who didn't. So Moxham hated his guts. Another of the prisoners, Owen Campbell, accused him of having betrayed prisoners outside the wire. Now, there's no no one to corroborate that, but that would be a, an unforgivable act if true. They certainly felt that he was saving his own skin by collaborating with the Japanese and that other people had suffered partly as a, as a, as a result. When the war in the Pacific came to an end with the Japanese surrender in 1945, the Japanese officers and guards who had been at Santa Can were tried for war, at these war crimes trials. How was Stipowicz able to be so useful to the prosecution? I think one of the benefits of being in the technical party was he was actually allowed to roam at will around the camp. So that benefited him at the time, but it also meant that he saw everything. He was the the witness par excellence. He saw everything that happened. He memorised every cut in rations. He saw or claimed to have seen every act of bastardry by Japanese guards. He was all a prosecuting lawyer could could hope for because um, he'd seen and remembered everything. And what he hadn't seen and remembered, he was um, not above making up. The war crimes in Nuremberg, a lot of the tough guys had been Nazi war criminals, these hard men who believed in the master race and all that, they turned into these pathetic whining specimens who said, I was just following orders. Were the Japanese the same who were put on the dock in these war crimes trials? They did. They, that was one trick. They would say they were following orders from above, although, although that, was, that was an awkward path for them to follow sometimes mm. because that was dumping officers, seeing their seniors in, in trouble, which uh, didn't always go down well with other Japanese. And I did what I could for the prisoners here and there, that kind of thing. They did, mm. they did say that, but they were all interrogated early on just after the end of the war and they made statements that were often a bit recklessly candid about what they'd done and they then spent the following months um, backtracking on those. So by the time they came to trial, they were recanting on all the evidence that they'd given before. And what became of Captain Hoshijima, the camp commandant of Santa Ken? Hoshijima was, um, was hanged. He didn't have a leg to stand on in the trial, really. He was charged on four counts. He was charged with, with cruelty to the prisoners, with having withheld medical supplies, with having forced sick prisoners to work, which was against the Geneva Convention. 
And with Stipowicz being able to give um, testimony on virtually every one of those counts, Moffat was pretty confident that he would be for the drop and he, and he was right. And how did Hoshijima conduct himself at the gallows? Well, he's, according to accounts in Australian newspapers at the time, he, he walked up the steps to the gallows. He'd asked for morphia, which he was refused. Then he was allowed to write 10 goodbye letters to his family. But as, as he reached the, the top of the gallows, he bit the arm of the person who was there to uh, put a hood over his head and shouted Banzai and long live the emperor as he was hanged. Bill Stipowicz was also very helpful in the search for bodies of Australian prisoners of war who had fallen along the jungle track. In fact, he seems to have been remarkably effective to the point of really taking on the Australian War Graves organisation in terms of accused them of not really looking hard enough. What was his role there? He spent, I think, a lot of his career winding up both officers and um, and fellow soldiers, and he certainly wound up the officers on the War Graves unit because he, he'd been there and they hadn't. He He knew where the bodies were buried or where they were likely to have been buried or more likely just left, left in the jungle. Um, and I think this is a very important point about him because I think he was driven in trying to find these bodies. He made himself very unpopular with his officers because he insisted on researching areas that had already been searched and where a few but not enough bodies had been found. But I think it, it was more than just wanting to do a job. I think I think he felt beholden to the thousands of other soldiers who died, uh, prisoners who died there when he'd survived. And I think there was something about him him trying to make reparations perhaps for, for his own survival because his determination to find those graves was, was extraordinary. When he escaped from Ranau, as you said, he escaped with another quite ill POW, Herman Reither. But when he was found by an Australian unit, when he came to an Australian camp, he was alone. What became of his fellow escapee, Herman Reither? Well, for a long time, it was recorded that Reither died of dysentery and illness. That was the story for a long time, and that was the way Stipowicz described what had happened and the way official reports described what had happened. But then other stories began to come out suggesting that Reither had been caught up in, in a fight. He was carrying injuries it was unclear who he'd actually fought with. Maybe a Japanese soldier had stumbled across him. Maybe he'd got into a fight with locals. Maybe his dysentery was worse than others had thought and that he was becoming delirious. And so possibly Stipowicz realised that he was a danger, not just to himself, but he was a danger to the village where they were being harboured, where they risked dreadful reprisals from the Japanese for harbouring escaped prisoners. So there are strong suggestions allegations by Lynette Silver, one of the people who's written books about Sandakan, that Stipowicz murdered Reither. How much credence can you put on those allegations? Well, I, I think it's it's quite possible that Stipowicz did hasten Reither's end, but I think it's worth pointing out that three of the other escapees, Shorten Botterill, escaped with another man and they killed him. He was also delirious. He risked jeopardising their escape... So it's quite possible that Stipowicz also did that. These were such extreme circumstances. If their mates were already very sick and likely to die, possibly they felt hastening it was all they could do. 
So Stipowicz survived and recovered his health. What did he do after the war? He stayed in the army, unlike the others who were, were very keen to be away from the army. He stayed in the army, did a, a variety of jobs, mostly in the technical area. He wasn't a fighting soldier, but he stayed for 20 years or so in the army. Stipowicz died in 1977 in a bizarre accident. What do you know of that? He was hit by two cars. In, two cars? Uh, two cars. It was a mysterious end. He might have taken his own life. Bill Moxham committed suicide in 1961. That's 16 years before Stipowicz died. All of the survivors, without exception, came out severely traumatised by their experiences. And, and Stipowicz had not suffered to the same extent as the others, but he'd suffered many sicknesses and he must have carried the mental scars of, of what he'd lived through in that time. It's possible he took his own life. It's possible it was just an accident. There are other more bizarre suggestions that maybe he was murdered, but um, I think it's more likely to be one of the first two. It's hard to draw strong conclusions about the life of this complex man. And rightly or wrongly, I feel the need to withhold judgment because I just can't possibly know what it was like to live through those times. How do you feel about all this, Tom, having written this story? Well, I, th I think it, it's, a, it's such a brutal environment and the people who survived, by and large, were not paragons of, of humanity. The people who were heroic in other ways, the people who resisted to the end were probably among the two and a half thousand who died. It took an exceptional uh, resilience, good luck, and perhaps absolute bastardry to be able to survive conditions like that. And Stipowicz was not alone in putting his own survival above that of every other person in the camp. Many of the prisoners would have thought that, but I think he was um, unusual in, in how resourceful he was and how bloody-minded he was about surviving. You know, in the past on this program, when I've talked about stories of the First World War and the horror of trench warfare, there was this extraordinary love that would spring up between the men who were going through this ordeal together, this very, very powerful love that they felt for one another. But it seems in Sandakan, the Japanese did everything they could to even take that from the POWs. They reduced them in some cases to feral creatures who were squabbling with each other for the last scrap of food. This was the thing that Dick Braithwaite told me about Dick Braithwaite Jr., the son of Dick Braithwaite Sr., who was one of the six survivors, who said, who had said that the most distressing thing he'd seen throughout the whole of his time there was watching good friends and good men be driven mad through starvation and cruelty to f scrabbling with each other for some tiny scrap of food. Yes, that's right. Keith Botterill, who was one of the six survivors, he, he describes how on his 21st birthday he and the other two men he escaped with would watch each other like hawks as they cut an egg into three pieces. And one of the saddest things about the whole story is to, to see how they lost that humanity and they felt they were something less than human. They were, they were appalled by their own behaviour. If I try and think of something in this story that has a kind of a fierce beauty in the face of all this, I'm thinking of Jimmy Darlington, that boxer, who, first of all, stood up for himself and for another fellow prisoner who was being beaten and suffered for it nonetheless. Do you see anything that kind of shined to you as a kind of a moment where there was something fiercely beautiful that emerged from all this dreadfulness and, and horror and terror? I think I, I spent a lot of time reading about Weary Dunlop, and I think he, he exemplified that kind of um, behaviour talking about and the extraordinary 
humanity and courage that he showed. And I think there are moments of that in, in this story. But when you look at the weight of suffering around it and the evil that they were subjected to, it was very hard for that kind of behaviour to emerge. When I spoke to Dick Braithwaite, he said he was asked to write his father's story down and he wrote it down and he what he realised what he'd written at the end was a, a very angry anti-Japanese screed and he thought, well, no, one, the world doesn't need another one of these and thought afterwards that the point was to understand, to try and understand. I think I, I agree with that. I spoke to um, one of Bill Stipowicz's um, surviving relatives, Ben, who was the grandson of, of Bill's brother, and he told me that when he first started studying Bill's story, he was loyal to the family. He felt that these um, slurs against Bill uh, must be unfair. And he spent some time in the war memorial reading all the the documents, reading everything they had about him. And in the end, he began to think, well, there was a potential there for Bill to have done many of these things. But he also saw the complexity of the situation he he was in. He was in a world where resistance was likely to end in in your own death and wasn't going to further anyone's aims and possibly some degree of cooperation that could verge on collaboration might actually be another form of resistance. Thank you, Tom, for coming here today and sharing this story. Thanks, Richard, for having me. Tom Gilling is the author of The Witness. I'm Richard Feidler. Thanks for listening. been listening to a podcast of conversations with Richard Feidler. For more conversations interviews, please go to the website abc.net.au slash conversations. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.